I want to thank Pastor Jason for that good lesson today. There's much that we need to learn in the work of the kingdom of God. Being a Christian is not a small task. It is something you work at. It's like marriage. Marriage doesn't come just naturally. You work at your marriage to make it successful, to have God bless it, to fulfill your duties as husband and father or mother and wife. And so it is, there's much to learn But yet God has ordained for us the means by which we will grow and mature in our Christian faith. I say to you, you will not grow in your Christian faith if you do not study the word of the living God. I cannot emphasize that enough to you. You'll never grow. It's an impossibility to grow without becoming one who is knowledgeable of the truth of God and is constantly seeking to advance their understanding of the word, of the way that word is to be worked into their life, practiced out daily, as they seek to commune with God in their prayer life, you will not grow lacking those things. You cannot. You can be in church for 40 years, but you'll be a baby Christian at best. And if you've got somebody who's been in church for 40 years and they have not grown, I would say to you, I believe we've got another problem on our hands. But you only grow as God increases you through the power of his spirit and the word of truth. Now, we're looking at this important doctrine of church discipline. It is a very important doctrine because it is one aspect of how we do grow. As Pastor Jason has just pointed out to us, it is essential. One of the things that we do is prescriptively tell you what the Word of God says, and then we also look at the corrective means God gives to keep the church moving down the straight and narrow path toward the celestial kingdom of Christ. And so we have this important doctrine, and we're looking at the steps that we are taking that when someone is in sin and has transgressed, how do we deal with that? So I want us to go back here in the 15th sermon, and I want us just to remember the importance of the aspect of this third step, which is the two witnesses in corrective church discipline. Now, we have said over the last few weeks, church discipline is rightly summed up in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Again, we read in Matthew 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is the command. It's not for him to hunt you down when he has sinned against you and against your conscience according to scripture, you're to go to him and confront him with the transgression. If he hears you, meaning if he will receive the word that you bring to him, my dear brother, 
You have transgressed against me. You have sinned against me. And as a result, you need to repent of your sin and we need to be restored correctly with one another. And of course, it goes without saying, correctly with the Holy Spirit and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, if he hears you, hears it, receives it, you have gained your brother. It's been successful. To gain him means you have won him back to a right relationship in Christ. But if he will not hear, that is, if he will not receive the word that you bring to him, my brother, you have transgressed against me. Take with you one or two more, many more individuals. Now, up to this point, self-discipline is a private matter. And, and step two, one-to-one -one confrontation, which we just read, is also a private matter that deals only with the two. But now it expands. Now you're going to have at least one or if not two more witnesses. Thus, four people are going to be involved in this confrontation over a transgression against another brother. So he says, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That would include the person who is going with the transgression. By two or three witnesses, every word. Everything that was stated may be established. Yes, this brother came and he showed him, this is where you have sinned against me. This is how you have violated the word of God. This is how you violated my conscience. Uh, you have trespassed. I want you to repent. I want our relationship restored. But he would not hear him. Therefore, we're here to be witnesses to exactly what has taken place. These are the words of the offender and of the offended. And if he refuses to hear them, if he refuses to hear the three witnesses, Tell it to the church. Now, it is clearly been interpreted that it is often believed that the word church here means tell it to the leadership of the church. It belongs to the duty of the pastors or elders to deal with these issues. And so it is that some even argue that the two or three witnesses probably should be elders. I'm not sure that is necessarily implied here. But what is implied is the church is to hear this matter because it has now become a public matter. He will not hear the individual. He will not hear the witnesses who have established it. He refuses them and will not repent. He is now brought to the church to repent of his sin. And by that, I would assume that it is to be to the elders of the church. Now, if this is not spread beyond this, it's not an open public sin. You know, people, when you tell people something, I always think it's funny on the Internet, if you've ever read some of this stuff and really thought about what's being said, uh, the ignorance that runs in the internet is just unbelievable. Somebody says, well, this guy did this in public, he wrote this or he said this, and this guy, if he had a problem, should have did Matthew 18, 1 and 2. No, he shouldn't have. The guy put it in public. 
It's no longer one and two. Now, if he'd have kept his mouth shut, one and two. But he didn't. When it goes public, you got problems. And you have to deal with it publicly because you have sinned before all. And all need to be warned against public sin. So he says, tell it to the church. Now, if he refuses to repent by those whom God hath appointed to be, as we've seen in our confession, the censures of the church, those who judge such matters, the pastors and elders, it says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. He's to be identified publicly. He has sinned. His sin has affected the public very nature of the church. It's to be revealed of why he's been punished and why he's being considered a non-communing Christian. One who is not in communion with the body of Christ. He's outside of the body. He professes one thing, does something else. And so the correction begins. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, that they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. If the church asks the Father to bind them or to loose them, he will do it. To the benefit of the purity of his church, his bride. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them, he says. So you've got the context. Just want to make sure you understand that before we delve into this even further. So we began some Sundays ago talking about church discipline, how that it refers to teaching, to learning, to education, to tutoring. The whole purpose is instruction. We do not take a club and beat you for church discipline. I guess you could get some kind of an education out of that, mostly pain, and that hurts. But that's not the purpose. The way of righteousness, the way back to the truth is by instruction. You get it prescriptively by us preaching the word of God. You get it correctively by us applying that word of God to your life when there is transgression. And truthfully, there is little normally in most churches to transgression. There are some. We're a smaller church. But as I look around, I say, guess what? Everybody's here. Turn, look at each other. Turn around and look. Look at each other. None of you have been under church discipline, and all of you have been in this church for at least eight years or more. Dave's been here for 25 years. We're getting close. No church discipline. Why? Self-governing. He's got a hold of himself. As we said, the key word, self-control. He takes care of dealing with the sin. If there is instruction needed, he seeks it. He wants to know how to live to the glory of God. No, the rest of you have. You know, we don't have that much church discipline. And yet everybody seems to want to hate it. Oh. 
boy, that church just, you know, I can understand if we had all of you in racks or hanging on the wall or we were stretching you out and we had you all hooked up and we were stretching you to where, you know, at once you were four foot 11 and now you're six foot eight. We just got you on the rack and just twisting and twisting and we're beating you cat of nine tails and we're just constantly just, it isn't happening. Why? Well, so far, I'm assuming you're governing your life. Not one here has been under church discipline. I'm not going to say none of you have not come and asked questions. You have, but that's good. That's how you grow. That's how I grow. I also ask questions. I also go to my brothers, whom I and them subjection to, and say to them, you know, I was thinking about this, and before I do it and have to come back and apologize, I'd much rather do it right the first time. What's your thoughts on this? Being cautious. In three years, I will have spent 50 years in the ministry, and I don't want to ruin it by being disciplined. I have never gotten off track. You know why? A, because I fear what my Lord says, and B, I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right. But rightness is not what I think. It is what the Word of God says. And I have to submit to my brethren who could bring charges who have not. But none of you have been under discipline either. We're a church of church discipline. Oh, we've had a few. There'll be more. You always end up with a few. They just can't govern their life. And we begin to say, wow, what happened to the perseverance of the saints? Why doesn't this guy persevere righteousness in his life? Why isn't he working to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit and those works ordained for him to walk therein as a believer. Paul, Ephesians 2, verse 10. So we're not that church that worships in secret and we have all kind of scary things going on and that we're a part of some secret society and, and we go around and we beat people and, and we burn their houses down. I would say we blow their doors down, but unfortunately you'd think it's we're pigs and I don't want to do that. Uh, let's not confuse him, the three pigs, with actually burning a house down, running a man out, beating him, beating him and his family, shooting him hanging them, putting them on a rack. We don't do any of that. We're not as bad as people say. The sad part is they ought not be saying anything. It's not their right to judge. We have our own jurisdictional responsibility to our brothers in the faith. We have sworn our obedience to them in the Lord. We're not doing it wrong. We're doing it right. That's the exciting thing. Why? Because we're trying to win people back to Christ. That's why. We want reconciliation. And so it is with this positive and negative aspect of church discipline, this whole structure. It is important for us to understand how each step works, what is the right attitude, responsibility. We're going to look at all this before we're done. So let us consider now, if you would, this third step in the process, which I have called it the two other witnesses. The reason, as I said, for taking the next step is simply this. Step number three, 
is a result of step number two being rejected by the person who is confronted with their sin. That is the issue or the problem at this point is not being resolved. No reconciliation. At each stage, the process moves forward. And when the offender refuses to hear, to listen, to accept, to receive, to repent, to embrace the truth of their transgression, no reconciliation is achieved. And then we are forced to move on to the next step. This must be a genuine refusal. Clearly, you violated the law of God. Here's what the Bible says. This is what you've done. This is your sin. It's got to be cut and dry. It cannot be merely unreasonableness. This may require more than one attempt at reconciliation. Step three doesn't necessarily have to come immediately. You can go back two or three times. There's no command that says, oh, one step, and then you got to go two. It says that's the process. You go back and you can say to him, brother, I'm coming back to you. I really want to reconcile with you. You can do it until you feel we're going nowhere and not solving the problem. Thus, I need the two witnesses. But even with the two witnesses, they may say, look, there's, you know, there's a problem here. Yes, this is that there has been a misunderstanding versus a sin or a sin, and he only thinks it's a misunderstanding. And at this point, there is no rationale to what he's doing, but he is listening and conversing with us. Let's talk to the violator. And so the Three of them say, let's go back next week. Let's talk again. Let's continue to talk. I mean, we don't do it in counseling. And are we not doing it? This is counseling in its own way. When somebody comes in to me and says, my marriage is falling apart. What do I do? You need to do this. Next week they come back and say, did you do it? I uh, didn't get a chance to. Up, oh, then you got to get a divorce. That never happens in counseling. <laughs> we try to reconcile. We try to make it right. We try to heal the marriage and the relationship. Same thing with doing it in church, with discipline. So it may require varying your approach to the issue, additional conversation with the issue. It is a process. The process does not end once it's begun. Now, if you really want to have a real problem, start a process with the church and end it without them having a resolution. They'll take it, finally, to the highest court and ask for you to be put out of the church, recognized as a non-believer, unrepentant sinner, will not yield obedience to Christ. In any situation, I beg you, listen, converse, be willing to talk. Consider all that's being said. Go to your Bible. That doesn't mean go to it and make up your own meaning to different passages of Scripture. Go to it 
get you a commentator, one that's reputable. John Gill, Matthew Henry, John Calvin. Get, get one that we recognize. See what he says about those verses. You can't come up with your own twisting meaning. That doesn't work. Now you're interpreting the Bible wrongly. Thus, you're dealing with the Bible in a sinful way. Do not do that. But do not be unwilling to meet further concerning these matters. Be open to discussion and talk. Willing to say, if you can show me by Scripture where I have sinned, I will yield. So that very thing. None of us want to be wrong before God. Not as a believer we don't. What must be distinguished is between an unwillingness to listen and a failure to understand. The person you're talking to may say, I, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Now that can drag out to a long time and you're going to have to say at some point, you know, either we've got maybe the most ignorant person on the face of the earth who cannot reason, or they're just being unreasonable, and that is their means of being unwilling to listen. They're not really conversing with us any longer. Now they're stalling the process, and they have not entered into an honest dialogue. We must not dismiss the offender's desire for you to elaborate your position on this transgression or further explanation of it. You've got to give time to it, you understand? We do that. You do it with your children all the time. Didn't I tell you not to do that? Now, what part of this command did you not get that you felt like you could not follow it again? What did you not get? We do that way. We teach everybody that way. What's missing that you didn't understand? There is the possibility that happens. It may not be just stubbornness and unwillingness to stay in sin, but it may be a person not capable of completely understanding how they have transgressed you. And so I say, you be very careful in all of this. Step two, one-to-one, -one, doesn't have to be only one meeting. It can be two, three, four, five, it can go on for a month. Two months. At some point, though, you've got to stop and say, you know what? We're not getting anywhere. We need to bring in three witnesses. That may go on for a month, two months. When you come to the point and you say, we are exhausted of everything we've able to do and we cannot get them to, to yield to us, no longer is this reasonable or in a misunderstanding or not understanding, but there is a willingness to defy. But as long as a reasonable discussion of the matter continues, we cannot charge a person with failure to listen and then just jump on to step four in the process. We had a meeting. I went to this guy and he said, no. I got two witnesses. He said, no. Third meeting, I took him before the church. He said, no. Fifth point, the church took him before the church. Five meetings, and he was out. Now, I've told people who have come to us and said, we're not really happy the way things are going here at the church. We'd like to see other things. And the answer I always tell them is very simple. I don't tell them you're in sin or doing anything else. I said, you know what? There's a church just down the street that really wants you. 
Go down there and play your game with them. Don't do it here. But that's far cry from somebody who is a member of the church and saying, look, we're here to help. We're here to instruct. Think of how much instruction we go through growing up in our life in order that we might be able to function rightfully. So we must be careful. The bottom line is simply this. It is the unwillingness to listen that disqualifies the offender from getting the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to hear it. I refuse to hear it any longer. I'm not going to discuss this with you. Unequivocally, that's unwillingness to listen. He's disqualified. Move it on next step. The operative phrase in Matthew 18, verse 16, is this. If he won't listen to you, he's not willing to hear it any longer. He's not willing to discuss it, to talk about it, to reason as to what has taken place. Verse 17 is even stronger. If he refuses to listen, not just won't hear, now he refuses. I'm not going to do it. And you know, by the time you get to this fourth step in verse 17, you know what you got? When he refuses, you've got nothing left to do except for to A, suspend him from the Lord's Supper, which is what is often called the lesser of excommunication, and B, excommunicate him from the church. Count him as a non-believer. It wasn't my choice. He chose this route. Sin does that to people. It really does. And so it is. The phrase is used elsewhere only in Mark 5.36 where it may have been the meaning of not paying attention to. Mark 5.36 says, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. You're not paying attention. That's what he's saying. Do, do not be that person who does not pay attention. It describes a refusal to listen that amounts to ignoring the seriousness of the contention or its content at the level that you are in the process. You got that point? Regarding witnesses, they are not merely witnesses. They are first counselors. Do you not see that in this text? Who seek to want reunite the two estranged parties. They're there to establish every word, to make sure that everything is going the right way, that all parties that are involved understand exactly what does the scripture say, what should be our response, why isn't reconciliation coming? They're counselors. And that's very much indicated simply by the phrase, if he refuses to listen to them. They're speaking, he won't listen. They are active participants at this point in the reconciliation process that is going on. It is when the refusal takes place that they then turn into witnesses. We did everything we could do, but here's what took place. Originally, they were not witnesses. For clarity, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.1 wrote, this will be the third time I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word shall be a 
established. What the witnesses attest to is every word, not to the events themselves. Yeah, he, he went back. We went with him. He told him. They're not just witnessing the event. They are dealing with every word that is being stated by both parties. Many cases of estrangement occur because of both the actions and the words that are used. Jesus described the witnesses as what? Confirmers of the words only. Moreover, in the first instance, they are not called witnesses, but one or two others. They turn into witnesses only upon the refusal of one or more of the parties to repent or be reconciled. They witness to the discussion between the parties during step three and not about the sin that occasioned step two. Now they're moved on. We can't deal with what was said in step two. We are dealing with the original transgression and now what is being said at this meeting that we have been invited to be a part of. Who should these witnesses be? Well, our Lord doesn't specifically say here. But, evidently, by one or two others, he means any two Christians may be called to intervene. One would assume they would not be a novice. Oh, brother so-and-so got saved two weeks ago. We'll have him be a witness. Ah, that's not a wise thing at all. It's unwise. But there would be two or three people that have got a will testimony of their life that they live a godly Christian <coughs> excuse me, life. So you pick carefully those who can prove to be reasonable men who are going to come and they're going to help counsel and if they can't bring reconciliation they will be valid witnesses to the truth <coughs> excuse me of every word that is established every word since they must offer counsel it's got to be somebody with some wisdom Persons who are what? Able to give counsel. Adams here, in his book on counseling, recommends that it be elders or deacons or even the pastors if necessary, simply because there is so much counseling and there is so much being laid down for reconciliation. Well, I don't know if that's the case or not, his book on church discipline, one needs to read. There are four or five very good books on reformed view of church discipline. But it does need to be a knowledgeable person. If this is not possible, other mature Christian men may be called in to help. This must be done properly. No premature announcing of the offender's name, for instance. Well, guess what? Brother so-and-so couldn't reconcile with brother so-and-so. And so we're going to go this next week. You pray for us and we're going to deal with this problem. That's something you don't do. Or that they go and say, yeah, well, I've been asked to come over and counsel here and so forth, they're telling other people. That's not their responsibility. When asked to serve, the Christian leader or the mature Christian should do so. And what do the witnesses do? 
What do these counselor witnesses do? They should approach their task in this way. They should go to meet with the offended and the offending parties. They should be careful not to prejudice the case by listening to anything other than the facts. Keep it on track, but to allow the offender to explain his perspective. If the offender refuses to agree to meet, they should do all they can to change his mind. No, brother, you need to go when you need to meet with, these, with this other brother and us. Doesn't mean you only got to say it once. You can say it two times, three times, till you've come to the decision he's not going to listen. He's not willing to listen. He's not just not understanding. He's refusing to do anything about his sin. And so it is. We give time. That's why we don't execute somebody the following week. That's why we don't kick them out within a week or two weeks. We have due process. We see it both as an opportunity to counsel, to get reconciliation and repentance among the body of Christ. We are patient. We are kind. We are gentle. But we confront the sin. We never can wave it off as if it has no meaning. If the offending party is willing to meet, then they should take charge designing or designating, if you will, one of the two to be the leader in the discussion between the two parties that are at odds with each other and then the discussion with all four of them together. They would ask both parties to bring their evidence, sticking to the pertinent facts of the issue. They begin with the accuser and his failed attempts at reconciliation. If the case was weak, the counselors may wish to urge the offended party to just simply drop the accusation. Well, we've heard the case, we've heard the explanation, and you've got a very weak case at best. So they may say to him, at this point, there's not going to be any real grounds to find them guilty of committing a sin. You've got to have some wisdom. You're actually playing the role of a judge here. You're weighing the evidence. You're weighing the arguments. You're coming to the logical conclusion of the reasons of what is taking place. And if the offended party has a prima facie case, that means first impression of a case will prevail until otherwise it's overturned. At that point, the counselor or witnesses will then ask the offender to offer his defense. Brother, this is pretty clear-cut. How are you going to respond to this? It doesn't differ from literally a civil trial. It doesn't differ from a ecclesiastical trial. It's just not with all of the things that go on that include all the processes. At this point, it's doing and it's being done in private. It's a many case, if you will, in which judgment is being brought, evidence is being examined, and exhortation for one or both to repent, for one to drop the case because it is too weak of a case. He hasn't really proved that or he's judging a motive. 
of which he can't establish the motive for sure is what he thinks it is. So there is a presumption upon his part that cannot be evidentiarily established. But it's important that these counselor witnesses, these two who come, should be careful to extract all facts relevant to the issue, even if the data itself is not immediately forthcoming. But they need to establish it all. They need to bring it out. They need to ask questions. They need to go and find out what has really taken place so that they have a complete picture of what it is and has transpired. They should be alert not only to facts, but to attitudes. Well, brother, your attitude is horrible. Which gives us to believe that you may know that there is a sin. And you may know that you're guilty. And it angers you. You know, when people get caught doing something that they didn't want anybody to catch them do, they get angry. A lot of people, when you say they did something and they know they didn't do it, they just laugh it off and say, well, there's just no way I didn't do that. But when you get caught and you're caught doing it wrong, it tends to be in anger. You didn't want to be caught. So you've got to look at their attitude as well. If the discussion becomes heated, they may need to calm the parties down, even separate them for a few minutes. If the counselors discover that an offense was committed and that there is no mere misunderstanding, they should proceed to ascertain the relevant facts, evaluate those in light of the scripture, and then suggest a plan to resolve the matter. If matters can be resolved here, there will be no need to go any further in the process of church discipline. If, however, one of the other parties is dissatisfied with the solution that has come up with, the counselors would warn the recalcitrant brother, as stated in point two, and advise the other brother to refer the matter to the whole church. Well, we can't, we can't get him off his point. He's, he's not hearing, he's not willing. You need to go ahead and take it to the church. That's their alternative. He won't listen to us. He won't do what we said. We have no choice but for you to take it further. If he should, if he should fail to do so, they would be obliged to do so according to Galatians 1, or Galatians 6, 1 through 2. In other words, if the guy says, you know, I'm tired of, of dealing with him. I don't want to go any further. I'm tired of the process. Then it becomes the duty of the witnesses to take it further. There is a breach. There is a breach in the unity and fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ that cannot go on. It will hurt the body. Galatians 6, 1 through 2, here Paul writing says... Brother, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are, that is to say, they cannot stand by knowing the situation and that not all the resources have been exhausted, those of you who are spiritual, that is, those of you who walk by the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So you're a counselor, you're a witness, you may be required to make a judgment, and you may be required to be the appellate attorney in the case, as it were, to say, 
This is not resolved. There is not unity in the church. There is a breach. This brother will not go forward and take care of it. And that's a sin on his part. And the church may address that. Brother, you got a duty to bring this forward and didn't do it. That's sin in itself. But it has to be taken up then and given to the church to deal with it. But people, the thing I want you to walk away with this is understanding. This is so important. It's not just, I meet, it doesn't go well. We meet with two witnesses the second time, it doesn't go well. We go to the church, it doesn't go well, and then we excommunicate them. Four meetings and they're gone. That is not what this scripture says should happen. Why do you think we spend so much time being willing to meet and to talk? Unless other circumstances are forbidding someone to be involved in it, it should be discussed and dealt with as long as there is a reasonable conversation taking place. Not allegations. If someone sits there and says, I think this of you, I think that of you. That's just saying, I'm not listening to you. I'm just hurtling allegations at you. Well, if you make an allegation, I hope you're ready to back it up. Because an unfounded allegation is a sin. Now you're just compiling your sin with more sins. That's not reasoning. That's not talking. That's not working through something. You're simply trying to justify your sin, and that ain't going to fly. But we do do the work of counselors. We do, at some point, have to become witnesses if we cannot get the reconciliation to take place that's necessary. We do sometimes have to take it to the church because the other party, the one who was offended, simply is exhausted and says, I don't want to do it anymore. They're not listening. They are living in sin. You're not going to change him. And he's not willing to do the full process. Believing that God might change them in the process. I know of cases in churches where Pastors gave testimony to the fact that they were in a church discipline situation and it had taken nearly six months to get to where they finally said, we've done everything we can do. You, you're just not going to, to deal with us, so we're going to have to excommunicate you. And at that point, they became under conviction and said, oh, I don't want that to happen. Please, let's talk. And at that point, the Spirit of God broke upon them. They saw their conviction, their transgression, and they repented and were restored, both to the party they offended and to the church in its unity and oneness. We are not. And we shall never, ever be unwilling to counsel when someone wants counseling. When someone doesn't know what they've done and need to be counseled, we're there. There is no rush to judgment unless your sin is public. And then step two, Three, no longer matters. Your sin is public. And because it's public, the elders are not even going, if the church are not even going to get to deal with you privately, it's in public. They've got to deal with it as a public sin. As I have read to you already, that the rest of the church may fear
in committing public sins as well. But we are trying to be kind and considerate. That's why it just is annoying when you hear people say, oh, they're mean. All those elders over there, they're not kind. I've never been unwilling to counsel and work with someone who will talk and reason. Ever. Everybody that we have done, and most of the people walk off that have been excommunicated. They just depart. But they broke their vows. You can't break your vows. Unless the vow was a sin, but where there is no sin, you've got to prove that you somehow violated one of the Ten Commandments. I don't know how you're going to do that unless you took a vow that was sinful. But if you took a vow... God expects you to keep the vow. He says, better to not vow than to vow and not keep it. They walk off. And what's the first thing to do? They got to go blab to everybody. I wasn't treated fair. Every time that happens, if I get, and I've had people come to me from other churches to say it, and I say, you know what, I'm sorry, you need to go back to your church and work it out. You know why? You know why they need to do that? Because they're in sin. You didn't work it out, you walked off. You refused to listen. That's who you are in this process. Never be that kind of a person. It doesn't really present you in your best life. Be willing to consider your life, possible transgressions, always seeking to have unity and reconciliation within the church of Jesus Christ. We're here. We're always willing to work with you. And so far, the beauty of it is, out of everybody that's here, none of you have been in under discipline for counseling. Amazing. Just amazing. You see how tainted counseling, church disciplines become? As soon as somebody says they practice church discipline, they think the worst of you. They think we got the Spanish Inquisition going on. But that's not the truth at all. Beware of those who will not listen. Because I tell you, there's something wrong spiritually in their life. Always be willing to hear Always be willing to reason and to discuss and to consider all issues that are brought to the table. Seek counseling. Seek understanding. I'm not going to say they're always going to have the answer. And they may not. And if they don't have the answer, they're not going to say this should go forward. They're going to say, you know what? The fact that we don't have enough. Not that you're not listening. There's not enough to reasonably convict him that this is this way. Then the recommendation may be you need to drop this because it's not a situation that you have enough evidence to prove your case. That happens. We see it in civil court all the time. Criminal court. Did the prosecutor meet the requirement of the evidence required to convict this guy. No, they did not. Then you're innocent until you can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt you're guilty. Now, reasonable doubt in a criminal case isn't the same thing as what you have the standard for a civil case. 
preponderance of evidence. And that's pretty much what the church has in their counsel. A preponderance of evidence will demonstrate you are in sin. But we willing be submissive. Have a desire to love Christ in his church. To love your brother in the Lord. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. Always. Shall we pray?